Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Starting with Cool and the Gang uh, here at the end of the week, at the end of Naughty Week here at the station, and and we're trying to keep Naughty Week going here on the nose. We don't really have any nautically theme. We could have rewatched Master and Commander. Now that I think of it, uh, <laughs> I think we had any number of other naughty options, but I don't. We didn't do any of them. That's the point. Uh, but we did decide that we would talk about some very naughty people who hijacked a plane, and Idris, Idris Elba was on it. Maybe they want to rethink that, huh? Huh, naughty people? All right, we'll get to the naughty people later. That's the uh, Apple Plus TV series, uh, Hijack. We're going to begin in a different place. Uh, we have two of our ace panelists here on the nose with us today. Irene Papoulis teaches writing at Trinity College. She does not fly Kingdom Air. Uh, Bill Usman is a professor of media studies uh, at Sacred Heart University and believed to be a key player in the Cheapside firm. See, if you haven't seen Hijack, and even if you have, maybe, I'm not even sure that joke lands. But anyway. I'm going to have to kill you now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, you have to hold my family hostage while I do some kind of show that you don't, that I don't want to do. Uh, I will be doing that. Right. Um, so, yes, I'm going to steer th- this show in the Bill Usman direction now. We'll be talking a, a lot about Neil Postman. How wonderful he is. Yeah. and No, like Neil Postman and NBA stuff. I, I think that's <laughs> the, the, <laughs> that's sort of the Bill Usman vibe right there. Um, all right. So we're going to begin with uh, Inku Kang, who was recently on our show, actually, wrote a piece for The New Yorker. It's like the umpteenth piece I've read that says that the people who make content that we watch on screens, that would be movies and television shows, and also flies who land on our screens, um, that the people who make things for our screens... Uh, they, they're not doing it right. We're heading for a crisis. Um, it's sort of weird because today, later on, we're going to talk about hijack, <coughs> which we all really liked a lot. It's probably the TV, the streaming TV hit of the summer, you know, just in terms of just buzz, so to speak, as they say in the world of flies and screens. It, you know, people really like it. Last week, we were, of course, talking about Barbenheimer, which is, you know, one of the most triumphant weekend uh, movie weekends in film history. It's sort of a strange time to be saying, <laughs> well, this is the Titanic, right? It's just going to go down in any second. Um, <laughs> so I don't know, Bill, as a media studies professor, I mean, how, how do you react to the con- – some? I mean, I'll, I'll quickly just add just for context. Some of the things that Kang talks about are things that we've talked about on the show, including the fact that Hollywood has failed really to develop – 
any uh, or very many young leading actors who can get people to go to movie theaters. They're relying on actors in their 50s, 60s, 70s, in the case of Indiana Jones, 80, uh, to try to get people to go. Um, they, they also have been heavily reliant on certain kinds of IP that seems to be dying out. There's Marvel fatigue out there in the world. As much as we may have enjoyed Guardians of the Galaxy Part 3, which we did, there's sort of Marvel fatigue, DC fatigue, um, and, and they may not have dr- drawn the appropriate lesson from the incredible success of Barbie. They may have drawn the conclusion that what they should do is make lots of vapid toy movies uh, based mm-hmm. on Mattel products as opposed to turning some kind of IP like that over to a quirky director like Greta Gerwig. So I don't know, Bill, start anywhere you want in, in all of this. Well, um, the Kang piece is a short piece, but there's actually a lot packed into it. So I'll just I'll just try to pull out uh, a couple of the things that are discussed in there. One is what you just mentioned. You know, Barbie notwithstanding, all these movies about essentially products, Beanie Babies, Blackberries, Cheetos, <laughs> sneakers, it's just mind-numbing, I, I, I think. And I, I don't mean to go all Arthur Miller here, but a man is not a piece of fruit. <laughs> a, a human is not a Cheeto. Like we need interesting and original and complex stories about human beings. And I don't think that's optional. We we really need this. And that doesn't mean, let me be quick to say, as someone who loves science fiction, etc., it doesn't have to just be naturalistic family melodramas. I love those kind of stories too, but this can happen in lots of different ways. The Tempest takes place on a magical island. And I mean, you know, maybe we'll get to our conversation about movie monsters. The thing about Frankenstein is that this is a story about humanity about what it means to be human or something other than human, about what's the interface between humans and their technological creations. But neither of those were created by business executives who were just (laughs) calculating profit and loss margins and actually not doing that very well, even what supposedly they're in charge of is supposed to be. I'm still stuck at Matt Damon giving the Arthur Miller speech, you know, in the Arthur Miller movie about the development of Air Jordans. You know, <laughs> respect must be paid to the sneaker. A man is not a flaming hot <laughs> Cheeto. Um, but uh, but yes, I. W- by the way, watching that the movie about the development of Air Jordans, uh, Air Jordans, starring some of our more preeminent actors in their fifties and sixties. I was sort of thinking, really, you're going to make these these people? It's kind of a fun movie, but this is what Affleck and Damon and all these other people are going to do is make a movie about developing a sneaker. So point to you, uh, Bill Usman, a point well made. Irene, where do you want to begin with all this? Um well, I guess I, I I was struck by Bill saying, well, I, I don't get me wrong, I do like science fiction, you know, and so in a way that that to me speaks to the idea that, oh, you like this particular science fiction movie? The, okay, well, we're going to make some more science fiction movies. And mm-hmm. the problem is that they, you know, the people in charge of making the movies, miss the reason why you like that movie. Yeah, we can all like a science fiction movie for various reasons, you know, and, and those reasons have to do with depth and complexity, maybe characterization, you know, maybe they do, maybe that's why you like that particular one. And, but those things are really hard to measure. You know, it's, it's very easy to measure. Oh, all these people went to a science fiction movie or Barbie movie. Let's do another toy movie because they must like toys, but that's not the reason they liked it. 
you know, and, right. and it's, exactly. but the thing and the, and the reason is hard to measure. And is it that they don't understand that or they just don't care about it? I don't know, because it seems like whenever there is, you know, Barbenheimer and, and Kang makes the point, it's please don't at least sabotage yourself. You know, like he's saying, why are they, it's almost as though they're actively working against what works? You know, all these people went out to see Barbie Barbenheimer. And so instead of saying, all right, let's make more movies that are complex and interesting and fun in in the way that those movies are, they they they're going in a different in the wrong direction. Why are they self-sabotaging themselves? It's you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it's almost like, is it just willful blindness or what is it that that doesn't allow them to pick up on what people really want? I hear what you're saying. The cheap side firm has shorted the stock out of Warner. That's what's happening. That's what you're saying right now. All right. So um, it's the producers producers all over again. Exactly. Uh, Let's let's make a movie about sneakers. Um, So, yeah, no, I mean, we talk all the time about the attention economy. And I thought the, the most alarming part of Chang's piece in The New Yorker, or Kang's piece in The New Yorker, is the moment where, um, She's talking about something that, you know, has kind of come up on the nose in a fairly unpleasant way. And that is that there, there's a, a sector of the audience that doesn't want to have to pay attention to what's on the screen. Uh, that they don't go to movie theaters anymore. They just have stuff on. It's Netflix and chill. They're, it's just, you know, they have stuff on and they want to be able to scroll through, scroll through their phones while they have it on. Justine Bateman actually has claimed that. That they're being asked to make movie, movies and TV products, you know, less like Hijack, where, you know, as we're about to say in the next segment, you you really do, you are pretty riveted. <laughs> there isn't a lot of time to check your messages during Hijack. Less like that, maybe more like something that you just can have a low commitment to. And I wonder about that. I mean, I, you know, Bill, I have to say, I refuse to get worried about all this stuff. I all, I, I think there will be a big sort of some kind. You know, there'll be a shakedown process. We're probably will sort out in, even to even more segmented audience uh, groups. There'll be kind of a long tail where I really love this kind of indie movie, and there happen to be, you know, three million people who are like me, and that's enough to really keep so and so, you know, uh, getting getting pictures green lighted or shows green lighted, and that that maybe that's what'll happen, and people won't get ten million dollars. You know, I mean, actors, Robert Downey Jr. won't get $10 million to star in movies anymore. But I don't know. That's what, what used to happen. That's yeah. how it used to be, right? Well, there there certainly was some of that. Um, yeah. And Bill, I don't know I, your thoughts. I mean, I guess the other thing I would say is the emphasis on blockbusters has grown decade after decade. If James Hanley were here, he would say so much of the movie industry you know, even before the internet was about having these monster opening weekends, speaking of monsters. And and so you tend not to develop, you know, I don't know, easy rider in, in that kind of climate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I do, I, I find myself sometimes also doing what you just alluded to, which is wondering, are, are we, are we making too much of this? And is, is there a historical tendency to always talk about the end of blank, 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 right? And that everything is always on on the verge of oblivion. And there have been these pieces written, you know, about Hollywood for, 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 for many decades now. But at the same time, there is something different. There is something different happening. You know, the allure of our multiple screens that you just alluded to is something that we didn't have 
in the past. And I think part of what's going on is that nobody needs, seems to know where this is going. Studio executives among them. And it's because of both technology and economics, right? The bre breakneck speed of technological innovations and the money above all else ethos is not a good comp combination when it comes to, you know, trying to create art is, which is what I thought this was supposed to be all about. And, and incidentally, there are some real parallels here to what's going on in higher education, including shrinking audience interest except for the rare giants, you know, where maybe Harvard and Princeton are the equivalent of Barbenheimer. <laughs> They'll be just fine. Yeah. But what about everybody else? And, you know, what about Easy Rider? What about The Graduate? Maybe The Graduate would still get made, but I'll bet we'd be home, you know, streaming it on, on our device instead of it being featured in a movie theater. Yeah, and I think, yeah, yeah Irene, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, just to pick up on the on the analogy to higher education, I think part of, you know, liberal arts colleges, for example, where I teach, are trying to define what it is that makes a liberal arts education valuable beyond uh, job training, like, uh, you know, for a particular work. You know, there's other things. And those things are very hard to define. And uh, it, if we can't define them, then why would anyone go to college, you know, unless they want to, unless they want to just get the credential and get the job. There's many other reasons, you know, that have to do with the same thing that those other movies are about, I think, you know, that, you know, depth, complexity, engagement with, with humanity and a deeper level, et cetera, you know, and, but those things are hard to measure and you can't measure them. And that's why Colin, I heard you say, I refuse to get worried about this, which I think is, I admire that. And I, and I don't want to be a person who gets worried about it. So, I'm hoping that you'll give me some some good ideas. Well, I mean, I, I do think it's okay. I mean, I don't think the, the current model is anything worth hanging on to. I mean, we've lived through 10, 15 years of, you know, the next Avengers movie <laughs> blotting out the, you know, the sun and everything around us. And I, I don't think that's necessarily a desirable environment. And I think one thing that has happened is that all of the people associated with that kind of IP, you know, it's they're going to have a hard time swimming back. I mean, da Robert Downey Jr. is great in Oppenheimer. Um there is still a little sense. There was even kind of a theory that that one of Nolan's subtexts about Oppenheimer was that he felt really bad about making the bomb that killed the world in the form of the Dark Knight Batman movies, you know, and this was sort of his apology. Uh, and, and, and so he has uh, Tony Stark play the biggest jerk in the Oppenheimer movie, the guy that you really hate. Um, and I just feel like, you know, I want to see Mark Ruffalo come back and make some really cool movies. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of these people who I think it will be very exciting to see. I think Elizabeth Olsen's a really good actor. I don't need to see her as, this, as Wanda, the Scarlet Witch. But I think, in a way, getting rid of that paradigm. If that paradigm crashes and burns, I think it's good news. Yeah, I think it's good news that, yes, people maybe go back and do some simpler, more humanly oriented projects, which we haven't had for a really long time. There haven't been movies for grownups. The last thing I want to just to have you guys say is, and Irene, I want to start with you. Um, you probably wouldn't have watched Hijack if we hadn't come and pounded on your door and demanded that you do so. And I wonder about that, too. I mean, we live in an attention economy, but some of it's just getting people's attention in the first place. To get you to watch something that you wind up loving is a complicated thing right now. 
Absolutely. Yeah, that's true. And and part of the dearth of, of options is what makes something like hijack really come to the come to the fore and make well also it's Idris Elba. I basically would see anything that he's in, so there is that. But um but that doesn't seem to drive decisions so much in the way that it used to, uh getting you know, getting Idris Elba in the movie. Yeah, absolutely. Or other actors, yeah. So, Bill, you get the last word about whatever you want to make it about. And then we'll talk about monsters for a few minutes. Well, Idris Elba is interesting because, you know, one of the other things that's that's talked about and that Kang talked about is sort of like the end of the movie star. And, yeah. you know, where's the bench? Where are these younger people coming up to, to, to replace people? Which, by the way, is also a question in American politics, very <laughs> crucially. Uh, but, yeah. you know, maybe but maybe Idris Elba is an indication that that also might be a bit overblown because I think of Idris Elba as a movie star. I mean, I don't know if you all do. I think he's got all the hallmarks of a movie star in terms of- But he's of, not young. She was talking about youth, you know? Well, is he young-ish? Yeah, he's, he's younger he's, than De Niro. He's, 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 he's certainly younger oh, than Harrison Ford. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I see what you're saying. First of all, I want to just say that- That maybe there's others also yeah. coming along yeah. with that, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm- you know, I'm really excited about the um, Julian Flynn ad- adaptation that's coming up that stars Gretchen Whitmer. I think it's going to be really good. Uh, and, uh, and so that's she looks like a movie star. She does right. So let's um, let's transition from there to monsters. So the the ringer. Since I brought up politics, since you brought up politics, <laughs> yeah, the real monsters are not on this list. Let me just say right right now, no. Bill has been kind of uh, banging away at that idea all week long. So um, obnoxiously so, <laughs> not obnoxiously, but yes, they gave us a list of thirty monsters, uh, starting with Godzilla and ending with the with Cloverfield, which is not really his name. I just feel so bad for Cloverfield. Because like all the other monster kids taunt him. They go, Cloverfield, Cloverfield. He goes, that's not my name. That is not my name. Uh, anyway, uh, Godzilla is number one. Uh, Cloverfield is number 30. Uh, these are the greatest movie monsters of them all. <laughs> the, the occasion for this is the release of The Meg 2. Just think about that. Uh, Naughty Week. Yeah, exactly. Naughty Week. So, Landshark. So, um, I don't know. I mean, Bill, I guess we should start with the fact that they let human beings, regular, well, irregular human beings on the list. Uh, they've got Anton Chigurh, for example, from No Country for Old Men. And that sort of opens up, you should pardon the expression, a Pandora's box. Because they all, you know, it's just, there's like, well, then where's Hannibal Lecter? But I don't know. What were, what were your overall right. reactions? Very arbitrary list. Yeah. Very arbitrary list. And I, and I do like horror movies and I do like serial killer movies. You know, I do have that that dark side. Um, which is why I joined that criminal organization in the first place. Um, but, but yeah, really are like, they just wanted to put on what they wanted to put on because they put on Amy Dunn from Gone Girl also. <laughs> it's such a reach. Uh, and then had really weak, ram, uh, you know, re- rationalizations for that. And, you know, we've been talking in various amongst us, uh, uh, of us, including McNichol have brought up, well, what about Hannibal Lecter? What about Norman Bates? What about Annie Wilkes? What about Dick Cheney? That was mine. Um, so it's a very arbitrary list. There's there's some things I do agree with it on. I do agree uh, with Brundlefly being on the list, but I think should be higher than 17. That's such a like heartbreaking film. You know, the remake of the the Fly. So pathetic. That line when he says, 
I'm saying I'm an insect who dreamt he was a man and loved it. But now the dream is over and the insect is awake. I think one of the great moments in, you know, American horror film. Take that, history. take that, Arthur Miller. Just as good. Except a man who's not a fly, except when he is. But yeah, I mean, that's anyway, that's from the fly. And so I'll, let me just bring this idea. This is an idea that I had, and it seemed like an Irene Papoulis idea, but we'll, we'll find out pretty darn quick here, won't we? Uh, which is, I think some of the most interesting monsters are the liminal monsters. And I suppose you could put the Brundle fly in there, you know, one minute he's Jeff Goldblum, then he's somebody else, you know. But uh, to me, one of the things that makes Han- Hannibal Lecter scary is that he's quite funny and charming, and he can actually be rather chivalrous towards Clarice, you know. Uh, he certainly doesn't like what Miggs uh, does to her, and he deals with it, and he makes sure her hair's wet. He s- shoots some clean, dry towels out through the little slidey thing, the little, you know, drive-in window thing that he's got there. Uh, and yeah, but, but he is a monster. He's a killer. And in a way, I, I think another one of those liminal monsters was, in fact, Idris Elba as Stringer Bell, you know, who's this kind of charming, interesting guy who's really trying to learn stuff and going to college and learning about business principles, getting like this MBA approach to being a drug kingpin, you know, but also just a stone cold killer or get somebody else to do your killing. And to me, the liminal monster, the one that's a little bit human and a little bit monster is probably almost a little bit scarier to me than the monster monster. But Irene, take that ball and go wherever you want. Oh, I just agree with that. I I do absolutely agree with that. And that's what makes any monster. So so that's why I didn't, I think including people in the list makes sense, but it is, it's a different kind of list. You know, who are the most chilling monsters that really make you really freak out that they exist in the world because we know that they do. Um, I like that Dolores Umbridge was on there from Harry Potter because she is a monster. She really is a monster too in the book as well as the movie, you know, just kind of saying, I'm going to take charge and I'm going to tell you educational decree number 42. And then they, they have to do it. You know, it's so, uh, I guess she would, by the way, she would be a, she'd be a superstar in Florida. I just want to say that right now. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. I have to say one of the most scary things of my entire childhood was the twilight zone episode about talking Tina, the doll, you know, that the Mm -hmm. doll was a monster, you know? So it's, it's absolutely because dolls are so great. And you know, I love dolls so much. And then this was an evil doll, you know, I mean, so um that that is the scariest monster ever if somebody is just a monster without any of those other qualities it's like yeah okay we have to get away we just have to get away but um but if they're if they're the liminal monster which is a good name for them those are the really scary ones for that reason i would include regan from the exorcist uh you yeah have this yes, yes. she's on my list she's a monster at least for a short time <laughs> yeah right? she's she's more frequently a monster probably than not a monster in that movie but we do get to see the nice little girl uh and yes. and there's just a way in which that's more alarming than just you know this shrieking demon um so I don't know. I, I just I guess, Bill, as we wrap up here, I think these lists are here just to annoy us and to get us sure. to say the name yeah. of the publication to put them out. I don't think they're meant to be much more than that. No, agreed. And so you mentioned uh, Reagan, uh, you know, uh, I think you meant uh, in The Exorcist, not the one who was in the White House for a long time. That's why I said Reagan. Um, I was very careful to say Reagan. Reagan, Reagan, you know, tomato, tomato. <laughs> Uh, but a couple others that I thought of was the witch from the Blair Witch Project. Can you have a monster that you never really see? 
Although I guess there's like some internet chatter about whether you do meet the Blair Witch earlier in the film and you just don't know it. Um, Rosemary's Baby, who you don't really see. Um, so, you know, I think there's, we could go on and on about the monsters that did not make the list. And I'm kind of worried about what they're planning on doing now because they were snubbed. Right. The monster, by the way, in Rosemary's Baby <laughs> is the family. It's the it's the family. It's John sure. Cassavetes and the family and Absolutely. the neighbors and all those people. Yeah. That's the monster in there. And once right. again, pretty liminal. It's normal life revealing its monstrous side. All right. Well, we're going to take a break here. By the way, is it clear that I've watched the opening scene of Silence of the Lambs a lot of times? <laughs> I don't watch the whole movie. I just watch that. because I don't think, even know how it ends. Yes, I have no idea. Uh, I assume she turns, turns out to be Wonder Woman. I, I don't know. But... Um, no, I just watch it because I like, what is going on with that relationship? It is just such an interesting relationship. All right, we have to take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk about this fine series called Hijack. Well, I saw the thing coming out of the sky. It had a one long horn and one big eye. Like a Mr. Shaking in the city. It looks like a purple people eater to me. It was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. One-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. One-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So uh, we're back. We're about to start, talk about the Apple Plus series Hijack. Um, and uh, we're going to do that with our uh, terrific panel. Irene Papoulis teaches writing at Trinity College. Bill Usman is professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. And I like the fact that it was just revealed that if Professor Usman is having uh, taking a little bit of time to get your paper back to you, it turns out because he's on some kind of a Blair Witch Project subreddit. Uh, <laughs> wait, wait a second. <laughs> wait a second. You're saying that was the witch there? Are you serious, man? Um, this is that rabbit hole show that you do. <laughs> um, yeah, he's on some old listserv uh, uh, <laughs> about Blair Witch Project. All right. So we're going to talk about Hijack. It stars Idris Elba and uh, you know, pretty strong supporting cast of people for the most part, except for maybe R.G. Punjabi, who you don't know. Um, and so we're going to hear a little scene from episode one uh, and, and episode two, I guess, maybe. I'm not sure. Uh, and you'll hear Idris Elba and uh, Neil Maskell as Stuart Adderton. Uh, here we go. Now, now listen to me. All right. There are like some 200 people on this flight, and most of them will do exactly as you say. That's right. But let's face it, there are some who will kick off and cause you problems. Sit down. No, no. Let me just tell you where I'm at, okay? Let me tell you where I'm at with this, all right? I don't care about any of those people. I just want to get home to my family. 
So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to help you. Don't need any help. Well, right now you don't, but what if it all goes wrong again? Who the f*** are you? You went too early, didn't you? He was going to do this later on in the flight. Then that man came rushing into first class and he was worried and panicking and then you gave him a green hat and the next thing you know, it was all going off. That wasn't part of the plan. Right? I'll get his passport. Yeah, that can't have been, that can't have been part of the plan. Look, if it's all going wrong in the first hour, imagine what could happen in the next six. So, um... This is a, a seven-part series. It's on Apple+. Plus. It really is, I think, kind of, at least in terms of Buzz, the hits uh, series of the summer. Uh, and it is, uh, I think we all agreed, uh, something that you you watch the episode and then you start counting the next six days. So <laughs> Except you guys binged it. But a lot of people have gone through that kind of waiting game with it. Uh, and it's not like you're going to forget what happened. It's, there's a lot of very crisp uh, tautness and tension uh, to it. Uh, it is, yes, about a hijack. Uh, Idris Elba is one of the passengers. He plays a guy named Sam whose business, it turns out, is negotiating settlements. Uh, and he spends the next seven hours of your time negotiating, trying to negotiate some kind of reasonable outcome to what's turning out to be an increasingly dangerous situation. So, I mean, one thing that I thought about this, and I think I shared it with you guys early on, is one of the things I think they do very well, and we're gonna not, not going to spoil stuff for you, but in, in the first episode, the first thing they do is kind of remind you of what air travel is like because a lot of us haven't been on a plane for a while, but also just because that's so key, right? Air travel is you're stuck in a tube with 200 people that you didn't pick out, uh, and some of them may be quite amiable, and you might enjoy talking to them, and some of them you want to get your seat moved. And you know, and, and there's something about that that they are saying to us that I think in a lot of other movies – I don't remember how well this was established on Snakes in a Plane, but I'm guessing it really they just didn't. There's something about that, that aspect of the human experience that's very well established here. But, Irene, go anywhere you want with this. Uh, yes, 100%. Um, I was sitting, I feel, I as I watched the beginning, I said that. I said, oh, my gosh, they're making it. I'm here. I'm mm-hmm. on this plane. I've been on this plane. I've seen these exact people. I've seen the family with the kids. Um, I've seen the people who don't want to be near the family with the kids. I've seen people pushing, you know, with their dads, you know, the, just the casting of the, of the plane and the feeling, and they took their time. You know, I think a lot of the, the reason why the, why it's so compelling is are factors that I, I wasn't paying attention to as much as I might've while I, while I was watching it in terms of just how they did it with the pacing and the editing and everything, but the feeling of getting on a plane and everyone's stuffed in there and you have to hurry up and you have to get your bag up there and you have to do, so it's sort of like, it's like if you've ever been on a plane, you're there in the movie with those people, you're one of those people and you're not necessarily a hero, me watching the, watching it. Um, you know, Idris and, you know, Idris Elba's character is, you know, he can sort of, he plays that morose, he's so good at that sort of morose, but incredibly watchful person that doesn't miss a beat, that can do anything, that is brave, that has qualities that normal human beings don't have, but in a very sort of um, way that you wouldn't necessarily notice if he were sitting there on the plane with you at first. Um, and yeah, so uh, yes, we, I feel like we, as the audience are on that plane with them and, and we have to consider our own, what our own reactions would be and what we would feel like. 
Right. And Bill, I'd love to hear anything you want to say about this, but I know I'm talking to the right person when I say this. One of the things that struck me this morning is the degree to which I think it almost intentionally, maybe subconsciously, mimics and then subverts one of the fundamental tropes of the Die Hard movies, particularly the first Die Hard movie. This is Idris Elba, one of the first things we find out about him is that he's separated from his wife and he doesn't like it. Uh, and he doesn't like it that Holly uh, turned her name back to Gennaro. No, but it's something like that. It's a, it's a lot like the Bruce Willis character <laughs> coming into Yakutomi Plaza, right? Uh, and And there is a way in which this is the evolved version of Die Hard. Like, if it's going to be solved, it's not going to be solved by the principal character being even more violent (laughs) than the kidnappers. Mm -hmm. It's going to be something Mm -hmm. else. But Mm -hmm. you take this wherever you want to go with it. Yeah. Um, You know, the the character that he plays, uh, Idris Elba, and I agree with Irene that he was a perfect choice for this. You know, sort of his quiet intensity, this calm exterior, but there's a tremendous amount going on underneath the character, Sam Nelson. He's not quite an action hero. I mean, maybe we're kind of back in the liminal here because he, he sort of is, but it's just as much verbal and psychological as it is action oriented violence. You know, he's got such a sharp eye. He knows how to, use people's names to connect with them you know his 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 job is he's a, ne- a business negotiator and he knows did you, all did that you stuff. identify with him did you identify with him like if you had been on the plane could you see yourself being in that role no i would have wanted to be sitting next to him and having him take care of me you'd yeah. be the guy with the red hair sitting <laughs> the next to him who can't really <laughs> you can't really make up your mind how you feel about it like, I mean, we should do something just wants to keep but, watching the yeah. movie um but he is he's the guy you want to be sitting next to he's the guy you want to have on that plane um because he's able to maintain this calmness and sure like it's 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 unbelievable in some ways um i love what the the person writing the review of it in the guardian said uh she called it beautifully daft absurd perfect nonsense to be enjoyed wholeheartedly and i think that kind of really sums it up in terms of yeah like it is you know kind of unbelievable and we talked in our emails about some of the you know plot holes and some of the inconsistencies but at the same time it is just kind of like a really intense passionate fun ride right i, was I would just... call it nonsense you wouldn't no, no. sorry well, call it no, no no go ahead because i think it was exploring issues that were it, it was exploring issues that were not nonsensical at all you know which have to do with heroism and and um and things like that and well, and the so, ability to get people yeah. to collaborate. We should say, Irene, yeah. that one of the yeah. things that they that this thing does, and I think it's a um, it struggles a little bit with this. And I don't mean just. I mean, I I agree with that Guardian review, and I know I've made that mistake in the past. Like with Gilligan's Island, I would go. It was just a three hour tour. How could they possibly be so far away <laughs> from anyone else that no one could find them? You know. Anyway, um, no, I think this thing struggles a little bit with being a, a, an Idris Elba vehicle. I mean, the camera loves some people watching him. They just you just are fascinated by him. Uh, and But it's also kind of an ensemble piece. There are other characters on the plane who are important. There are characters among the hijackers who are important. And then there's this whole parallel 
drama going down on uh, on the ground that includes the British Home Secretary and the Foreign Minister and a whole bunch of cops and and Idris Elba's ex wife and her new boyfriend who's a cop and and you know. I think it struggles with that a little bit. I mean, Archie Punjabi, who has kind of a following and stuff, I don't know. She's got about 12 lines in this whole thing. You're kind of wondering what she's even doing in it. But, you know, I don't know. Irene, I think maybe you do feel like some of those other side dramas got developed reasonably well. Yeah. I mean, I it didn't, it didn't you know, tell me something about the political workings of government or anything, but I sort of believed it. I, I, I believe the sort of, I believe the, what does it mean to say we don't know, negotiate with terrorists, you know? And what would you do? Because again, it was sort of, what would you do if you were in the government and this were going on? You know, you don't want to kill people. And, you know, what, but, but on the other hand, you, you can't have a, let a plane crash in London. And so what are you going to do? Um, is kind of a, a, an interest, I think it's an interesting question. Not that the, not that the film solves it, but I don't know. There's, I, I feel like it's a, it has, it, it sort of touched me in the sense of the, of the interactions among people and the negotiations among people in a way that didn't feel like nonsense. It, it, you know, it wasn't, you know, brilliant. I wouldn't call it, you know, an amazing insight, but it was just working with issues that, that we all have to work with all the time. Yeah, I don't think we're going to be, Bill, be quoting from this movie the way you quote from Arthur Miller or The Fly. Um, <laughs> no. But, um, but yeah, I mean, or from this series. But, and we should say that it's a seven-part series, seven hours long. The flight from Dubai to London is supposedly seven hours. You're presumably watching this whole thing unfold in real time. And I don't know, Bill, I don't know if you see any real, you know, no hugs, no learning. Are, is there any real message in this? I think there is a little bit in there about people's core competencies, like on a plane full of people. There are going to be people who are good at some stuff. There might be an Egyptian guy who knows a lot about guns. You know, you just You just never know who's going to be there. Yeah, I don't know if there's any big messages. Um, I do think that, well, one of, you know, related to one of the things that you two just mentioned, um, I actually kind of wanted there to be more of this, um, maybe 10 to 12 episodes, because I did want to know more about all of that ensemble cast. I wanted to know more of their backstories and maybe some flashbacks. You know, one of the things that I thought Lost did really well was, you know, it would it would show you these people, you know, on the island, but then it would flash back to what the life that led them to being there was. And I kind of thought there could have been some more of that, which could have helped develop the characters in some ways and might have also helped to develop bringing out some of those uh, bigger themes or not i i do think that it, it was quite emotional at times you know scenes of you know the passengers making phone calls you know really kind of like heartbreaking and intense kind of pathos and then you know some of the scenes that toward the end that we won't spoil are pretty terrifying especially if we think about you know things that have happened in the real world not really all that long ago. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's interesting to I'm think being about. Very cryptic on purpose, not but, to spoil anything. Yeah, yeah sorry. Um, I think we've been trained. We we've been trained by series to get all those backstories in a slow, you know, un, slowly unspooled way. And I do kind of miss a movie technique, which would be telling us more of those stories in a shorter amount of time. 
I, I think in the amount of time they had, they could have they could have filled in some some gaps that we didn't that we didn't get without having three more set, you know three more episodes of it. And, I, you know, because sometimes it's like, wait, movies movies do you can do that in two hours. You know, Die Hard did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's not a lot of backstory in Die Hard, but um, well, that's true. <laughs> but no, I, yeah, I I think that this film, this series, excuse me, is committed. Artistically, I think. First of all, Bill, I feel like there are writers' rooms and pitch meetings all over Hollywood where at some point somebody goes, but it's not going to turn into Lost, so don't worry about that, all right? <laughs> sure. But, um, yeah. sure. Yeah. But, but I think this thing is kind of committed to almost a kind of fragmented approach and, and to not really explaining everything to you. And there's some outcomes that you don't really exactly know about. When the whole movie is over, I'm not even quite sure. I, once again, we don't want to spoil anything, but off here, I could tell you like two or three people in this movie who could be alive or dead or I, I don't really know. I'm not really, not really quite sure. There's a lot going on really fast. But Bill, I think that's very much the vibe of the movie. A lot is going on really fast and we're going to tell you parts of this story and you're certainly going to understand at the end what kind of story you've seen. But just the way if you went through it, you wouldn't understand everything about it. We're going to kind of take that approach too, that there's just not everything is going to be explained perfectly and that's intentional as a way of keeping your attention. Yeah, and it does like it just keeps ramping up and the intent and, <laughs> and the tension keeps building and building and building and I am glad that I binged it. You know, I think it's interesting that all three of us keep referring to it as a movie. Yep. Uh, when it's actually a series. But I think there's something interesting that we keep doing that in which it really is kind of a seven hour movie. Um, and it does kind of build on itself and it it ramps that up very well in terms of that quick cutting and the editing and the fragmentation. And I would echo something you said earlier, which is this is not something that you should watch while you're also, you know, multitasking or on other screens because there's some intricacies and some great moments that you'll definitely miss and be kind of lost in. Yeah, and, and I think also, I, I think that's totally true. And the other virtue of it, Irene, and then we're going to have to wrap here, I think, but I, I was so happy that they did have a parallel story on the ground. I actually think a, a movie that took place exclusively on the plane, a seven-hour bottle episode, would have been almost unbearable. Um, you know, it's kind of like there, there's a way in which you get to go down on the ground and you get to see various kind of competent people. There's a character named Alice who's just, I think, the the second best character in this series. Is an yeah, air traffic, she's, she's a British air traffic controller who's habitually late to work because she drops her son off late and she's making excuses <laughs> for why she's always late and stuff like that. And then she turns out to be sort of the, the person that they really need in that situation. And Irene, I think that's actually a good thing. There's sort of, you know, I like the tension, but I also like a little bit of a relief valve. I have to say, yeah, I, I was thinking, am I going to be on this plane for seven hours? This is going to be torture. And we weren't. Yeah. And she was every, yeah, she was a kind of every woman mm-hmm. that, you know, imperfect. They, they they took pains to establish her as kind of imperfect at the beginning. And you thought it was going to be for some other reason. But no, it was just establishing her character. Um, and so I think they did do that. I feel like I got enough about the characters that I could imagine the rest, which I don't usually say about characters. But for this in this one, I did feel like I didn't I didn't need to know more because I could sort of imagine and I could imagine based on my own experience or whatever um, who 
the you know the backstories for them so yeah and so it was it was always a relief when you just couldn't stand another second on the plane and then boom it would cut to the real world and you could just relax right yeah that that was really well done we didn't need to see Alice go to H and M and buy that outfit and pay three pounds too much for it, and then hate, and then hate it when she got home. But she had to wear it to work, and she was late anyway. All right, so we're going to take a quick break, and we'll come back. We're going to make some recommendations. Blue sky smiling at me, nothing but blue skies. Do I see in the morning there's Singing a song, nothing but blue birds from now on. I never saw the sun shining so bright. All right, so uh, it's time to say thank you to our technical producer, Cat Pastor. Thank you. Uh, thanks to Jonathan McPants, who is producing the nose today. Uh, on tomorrow, our uh, newsletter, The Nose Letter, will be coming out. Some of the recommendations that get made here now will be spelled out in detail. There's photos of all kinds of people. There's a snappy essay from me and various things from Mr. McPants. And it's all free. Uh, you could sign up. Uh, you could, you know what you could do? You could just email me. Just email me today, colin, C-O-L-I-N, at ctpublic.org. And I'll freaking sign you up. It's concierge service. Concierge. I'm the concierge. All right, time to make some recommendations here. Bill Usman, why don't you go first? All right, I might surprise you a little bit with my recommendations uh, today. My first one is not a typical Bill Usman endorsement. Uh, my wife and I have started binging the Shonda Rhimes show Scandal. Uh, mm -hmm. Lori had watched it before. This is my first time. It's probably even more absurd than Hijack, but just as delightful in like the lens that it goes to. It's got some Aaron Sorkin vibes for some of us, Colin. That's a yes. good thing. <laughs> uh, but it's really more of like a steamy soap opera with a lot of House of Cards insanity mixed in. And it it ran for seven seasons. So if we, you know, start getting close to kind of running out of things to watch as the strikes go on, um, it'll give you a lot. Uh, one little caveat about uh, uh, Scandal, don't tell your conspiracy-minded uncle to watch it because it will just drive him over the edge. <laughs> uh, and then very quickly, uh, I want to recommend playing backgammon. Lori and I have become daily backgammon players, and it's a lot of fun. It's a great mix of luck and strategy. Uh, I have to say, one of us may at times get a little too competitive and take it a little too seriously, and that person may or may not be me. Oh. All right. So, uh, by the way, you had me there until Aaron Sorkin. Um, <laughs> and now I'm sort of, I was thinking, maybe I will watch Scandal. I watch Scandal. Maybe I will. All right. Nickel's on my side. <laughs> Irene Papoulos, uh, what are you going to recommend? Um, yeah. Uh, well, I, lo I love Scandal. And she did so much for red wine, the combination of red wine and popcorn. That's what she always had. So, <laughs> anyway, um, but I have two. One is, um, George Kay, who wrote the, the or, or, you know, a lot of the writing for Hijack, it turns out, wrote a this series on Netflix or was a showrunner for a series on Netflix called Criminal, colon, France, Criminal, colon, Germany, Criminal, colon, Spain, and UK. And it's it's a series of, in each one of those four, it's it's like a little play where there's a, there's a criminal and they're being interrogated. Um, and 
in the language of the country that they're being and they and there's they get these actors these like Dina Haas is in the German one she's uh, you know sometimes known as Tara's wife but she's she's been in a lot of of other um really interesting roles she's in there and and it's just if you're in the mood for sort of like a little these little uh yeah they're like playlists and it's really good it's called criminal so I, on on Netflix yeah yeah well um oh yeah go ahead keep going yeah. Okay. And I, I just have, I have one other one. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about silence lately. And that's why I was interested in Idris Elba's portrayal. Like a lot of times he just wouldn't answer if someone asked him a question. And I think that's kind of, I've just been paying attention to that lately. And I'm reading this novel. I'm also, I'm also trying to find art by younger people. Um, and this is a novel by a youngish, she's in her thirties, woman named Catherine Lacey. Um, named Pew, P-E-W. And at the beginning, it's a very short, it's like 200 pages, very intense read. Um, this one person, we don't know if it's a man or a woman, and, and neither does she from inside her head, um, wakes up in a, in a church pew and something is, something terrible has happened to her. We don't know what, and it's what happens to her. Mm-hmm. And we're inside her head. It's hard to explain, but it's a, if you're interested in silence and how it works and, and a very strange sort of edgy novel, um, read Pew. All right. Sounds like uh, a little bit like Other People, a Mystery Story, my favorite Martin Amos novel. But um, sounds great. Uh, and we'll check out Criminal. I think the new series, the interrogation is they're, going, they're, they're saying to the, the guy in the, in the room, so let me just get this straight. You're going to have fake electors from, from five different states? That's, that was what this plan was? Like, who told you to do that? Uh, that all right. would be good. That would be good. <laughs> so I'll just quickly say, and I'm talking to you, Laurie, mainly, if you want to get out of this sort of vicious backgammon cycle that you're in, you know, with this kind of uh, hot-headed opponent, one thing that you could do is you could watch on Apple Plus for all mankind. I don't, I, I don't like astronauts. They're not allowed on this show. Oh, they are this banned, is fantastic. They are Colin is doing my dirty work for me they right are banned, now. Astronauts are banned from the show. But this is a terrific series. And the premise of it is, is the, the launch point of it, so to speak, would be that women get involved in the space program way earlier. We have women astronauts way, way sooner uh, than we did otherwise. It's a tremendous cast all the way through. Those of you, well, now I'm going even mention, oh, there's somebody who turns up uh, in Ted Lasso uh, who's in this thing. But um, it's just terrific. It's really worth watching. And the other thing I'll just quickly say is that next weekend, almost definitely, the news will be about the Oliphantasauce. Uh, <laughs> the Oliphantasauce. <laughs> I, don't, I can't even say it right. It's like the Keanosauce. But it's Timothy Oliphant. We'll be talking about the revival of Justified uh, and then full circle, the Soderbergh thing that he's in right now. And, of course, everybody wants to be Timothy Oliphant or to be with Timothy Oliphant or to have a beer with Timothy Oliphant or to boo up with Timothy Oliphant. And so – We'll be all about him next week. And so I would really recommend Full Circle, particularly in terms of episodically having some of the tension and complexity that you might have enjoyed in Hijack. Uh, all right. We'll uh, go away now, and then we'll come back. That's the plan. That's what we do. Oh, yeah. Talk about Torrington, Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah. 